Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packer. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God and we understand it through the apostolic tradition, the tradition that goes back to the apostles and their disciples. And especially in this series, we're taking a look at Scripture so we can pray with it and come to understand our Lord better. Now, of course, we'd love to have you become part of the show. You can do that by adding your questions or comments, sending us these questions by email to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today we are continuing to look at the call of the apostles. And we're doing this by using my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098, and follow along with us. So we're in the chapter called Prelude to the Failures of the Apostles. And if you remember, last week we took a look at the call of the apostles and some of the background, especially in Matthew's Gospel. And I mentioned that the disciples were divided up into three groups of four each. And that each group of four is headed up by one apostle, uh, and it's the same ones in each of the groups. Uh, Peter for the first group, Philip for the second, and James, son of Alphaeus, for the third. So let us now take a look at another one of the lists of the apostles, and that's in Mark chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Again, last week was Matthew 10. Now it's Mark 3, 13 to 15. It says here, And Jesus went up into the hills and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, again, you see the number 12 is mentioned very explicitly because our Lord is definitely making a parallel to ancient Israel with its 12 tribes, each of which was founded by one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So that's that there. But then notice how St. Mark also mentions that Jesus went up on the mountain. In doing this, it's very much along the lines parallel to Moses going up on the mountain. When he was about to make the covenant with Israel, if you take a look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, where it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings 
and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And this is very important to see that Moses had gone up the mountain for the call of Israel to belong to the Lord in a covenant. And our Lord Jesus does the same in the New Testament. And there are a couple of things to note. First, according to St. Mark, our Lord has two reasons for calling these 12. The first reason is that he wanted the 12 to be with him. He's looking for their companionship. And they would form the nucleus of his new community, the church. That is one thing. Secondly, we see his purpose is to send them out. And A, he's to preach the gospel and help them to cast out demons and heal. Just as we saw in Matthew 10, they have the task of preaching the gospel of Jesus. They are not to preach their own gospel, their own message, or any such thing, but they are to preach the gospel of Jesus. They are not to make something up, but to be faithful in repeating the gospel of Jesus, which at its core was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. But also, he's to cast out demons because the coming of the kingdom of God is an invasion into the kingdom of Satan and darkness. Satan is the head of the kingdoms of this world. If you remember back when our Lord Jesus was tempted by Satan, one of the temptations was to take him to a high mountain and look at all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says to him, I will give you all these kingdoms if you will just bow down and worship me. Now, of course, our Lord would not bow down to him as he says. You bow down and worship the Lord your God alone. That's important. But here's something that is implicit that we should all pay attention to. Just, you know, this, when Satan says, I'll give you these kingdoms, notice that our Lord Jesus does not deny that the kingdoms of the world are in Satan's control. He doesn't deny that. He accepts that as the way things are. Otherwise, he would have argued with Satan, said, you don't have power over these kingdoms. But our Lord doesn't argue that point because he knows Satan does have control over these kingdoms. 
So that's very, very important. And therefore, the coming of Jesus and the mission of his apostles is to give this invasion into Satan's kingdom. Very important. So, again, we notice that um, when St. Mark lists the names, he also gives the three groups with four apostles in each group. And the first name of each group is always going to show which one of those four is preeminent. And it's this, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, it's always the same three that are the preeminent disciples. Each of them heads a subgroup. So we read this in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. The list is Simon, whom he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he surnamed Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean. These are the, the, the people that he lists. And we'll, let's take a look at these lists. Um, because especially in Mark's gospel, we see that there is a diversity among the apostles. And this is very important. The first group are the four fishing partners. Simon, whom we named Peter, James, son of Zebedee, uh, and John, his brother. And he, again, named these Boanerges, the sons of thunder, and Peter's brother, Andrew. The call of those four was given earlier when Jesus is walking along the shore and says to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, uh, come follow me. And they left their nets and boats and followed him. Then he goes up to James and John, mending nets in their father's boat, and calls them and they follow him. They form the first group. Now, something I should mention, I didn't mention last time, but the name Simon was the most popular name in the country. You know, the popularity of names uh, varies over time. You know, you see a lot of names today that were not used when I was growing up. I didn't know anybody named uh, Jacob uh, or Jordan. Uh, that those names were not around much. And in my day, you didn't see people, especially girls, who were named, um, you know, Charity or Faith. That was very popular in the 1800s. You had people would name their daughters Faith, Hope, or Charity. Fairly common. But uh, Charlotte. But you didn't see that so much in my time. Uh, you see these name changes uh, uh, and popularity uh, go on. And at the time of Christ, Simon was the most popular name among uh, Jewish men. 
and so that's uh, that's especially from uh, the, during the time of the Roman occupation. You see this in various inscriptions, especially in graveyards. That's where you'd see it because they, you know, we don't have any of the old census, you know, that, that, that we didn't get that. Also, he is surnamed uh, Peter. Now, in Greek, it's Peter or Petros in Greek, but his Aramaic name was Kepha. And Kepha means Peter. We see that in the Gospel of St. John at, at his call. Um, this is something that's kind of important because uh, our Lord didn't change many names, but he changed Simon's name to Kepha. What does Kepha mean in Aramaic? It is a crag of rock. Some people try to say, well, Petros means a little rock. Petra means a big rock. Actually, Kepha means a crag of rock. That's for sure. Petros can be used either way. And you have to go to ancient Greek literature and you see that it refers to a crag and it refers to smaller stones. Depending on which text you're looking at, you have to always check from context. But Kepha means uh, a crag of rock. And this is uh, something that is, you know, a, a rare name. The only, there's only one other person that we know of who had the name Kepha. And this was an Israelite who lived on Elephantini Island in the 400s BC. Now, this is really stretching, you know, but when I was in Aramaic class, that was one of the first texts we read, even before we started reading uh, the Aramaic sections of the book of Daniel. We read that letter uh, because it had the letter Kepha, the name Kepha in there. But we don't see it again, so it's pretty rare. And if you ever go to Elephantini Island, which is down near Aswan in the pretty far south in Egypt, you'll see that why they call the guy Rock. It's a rock, you know, the island is this rock in the middle of the Nile River. Uh, so it's just a river island. Uh, but it had a large settlement, still has a large settlement on it, and they named it after, named him after those rocks. Now something that we also see is another name change, but it's, it seems to be more of a nickname, uh, and that's for the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was their father, a fisherman, and his two sons, James and John, get a, a title, and that is Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, this is not so much about Zebedee as it is about the two brothers. Apparently, they had a little bit of a temper. That's why they seem to be called sons of thunder. Um, you see this, by the way, referred to in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, where it says, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. 
but the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. No, he did not want fire to consume them. But that this shows that their temp temper was something that was just a little out of control. And uh, he rebuked them. And later on, we'll also see that when it comes time for them to sit on his right and on his left, uh, they, they want that seat and he has to rebuke them for that too. So they have a little impetuosity there. Um, Peter, James, and John are going to be our Lord's closest intimates. You'll see that too in the gospel. They are present at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, verse 37. They're also present at the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9, verse 2. And they are present when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, Mark 14, verse 33. And uh, you see that Peter's brother uh, and partner, Andrew, is the fourth person in this list after James and John. Um, he was still outside that intimate group of three. He wasn't quite part of that. And we don't see too much about him except his call. Back in Mark 1, verse 16, and Matthew 4, 18, Luke 6, verse 14. So he's mentioned there. And in this list of the apostles, we see that there. And then he's mentioned a couple of the times as the co-owner of the house uh, after they, Jesus left the synagogue in Mark 1.29. It says that uh, immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So Simon and Andrew shared a house together, which is just, you know, a half block away from the synagogue. You can still go see it when you go to Capernaum. And um, so this is so that's that's there, and also uh, he's with them when Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives in Mark 13, verse three to four. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, "Tell us when this will be. Will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished." So he is asking about signs for the end of the world. That's, that's it. In John's gospel, he has more prominence. Now, that makes sense because St. Andrew had preached in Asia Minor and St. John had gone to Ephesus and wrote his gospel for the Christians of Ephesus also in Asia Minor. So Andrew was known to the people of Asia Minor and John makes more mention of them. For instance, in John chapter 1, verse 40, one of the two who heard John, that is John the Baptist, speak and who followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then Andrew will go call his brother Philip. So that's one thing. And then also, um, he's the one who points out in, Matthew, in John 6, 
that there's a boy that has five barley loaves and two fish. So he's mentioned there too. And then uh, it, it also uh, has uh, uh, Philip meet some Greeks on Palm Sunday. And the Greeks want to speak to Jesus. So Philip brings them to Andrew. Now, Andrew is not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name, Andreas. And this, so is Philip for that matter. But it seems to be that Andrew may well have known Greek. So he invites Andrew to translate for the Greeks, that he would be the one translating from the Greeks to Jesus. And that's in John chapter 12, verse 22. So again, Andrew has just a little bit more prominence in the Gospel of John, but that's because he was preaching in the same territory where John had been living when he wrote the Gospel. All right, we're going to, let me stop there. We'll take a little break and I'll continue on with this list of the disciples in Mark chapter 3. So please stay with us. We are now taking a look at Mark chapter 3, verse 18, and this is the second group of four. Just as in Matthew chapter 10, this group begins with Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. Okay? Uh, same, same four that were in the second group in Matthew's gospel. Now, a couple things. Notice that this includes Matthew. Um, this is a very important apostle. And in Mark's gospel, the call of Matthew is a big, big issue. Uh, you see that in Mark chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, where it says, As he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he sat at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is a big story, a very important one. And we see it also repeated in Luke 5, 27 to 28. Uh, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. 
So this is a, a very important thing. And you can imagine that the presence of a tax collector caused tension. Um, this was uh, especially the case for Simon the Cananean, uh, because Simon the Cananean was also a zealot. He belonged to this radical party that wanted the Romans driven out of the country. So he would not have liked having a tax collector who collected taxes for the hated Romans. You can see that there was political tension and Jesus brought it into the circle of his 12 apostles. Very important to pay attention to. Um, the other three disciples, Philip, Bartholomew, and Thomas, are not really prominent in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they do play significant roles in the Gospel of John, uh, just as we saw before with Andrew. So um, let's take a look at that. First of all, uh, in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 43. Uh, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then Philip found Nathanael, who said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Nathanael answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of, the, of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now that's a fairly long passage, but that is where we hear about Philip and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel would have been the apostle's first name, Bartholomew, uh, Bartholomew would have been his second name because Bartholomew means son of Thomas. So, um, uh, Tomai in Aramaic. So, son of Tomai is who he's identified by family, while his first name would have been Nathaniel, meaning uh, God gave. So, he and Philip are friends. Philip had called him to twelve, and Bartholomew Nathaniel is in the group that's headed by Philip. Philip is also mentioned in John 6, verses 5 to 7. Uh, when Jesus was lifting up his eyes and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, How are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This was said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. 
And Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. So this is Philip, uh, one of the first disciples called. And he um, is also mentioned, uh, as we mentioned, said earlier, in John 12, 21, when some Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. Again, Philip and Andrew both have Greek names. They come from Bethsaida, which was renamed uh, from, uh, for the sake of the emperor. It was named after the emperor's daughter. But, you know, they, and they kind of became a place where they spoke a lot of Greek. Uh, we know that from Josephus, a Jewish historian. So that's, that's there. And then the last time we see uh, Philip mentioned is in John 14, verse 8 to 9. After Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. F uh, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you, uh, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So this is where Philip is mentioned a lot in the Gospel of John. And Philip is also like Andrew, one of the apostles who evangelized in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. So that's, that's where he's doing his. Um, and then we also see uh, Thomas, um, who, of course, we know uh, as the twin. Thoma, in Aramaic, means twin. He's also called Didymus, which is Greek for twin. We don't know who his twin was, but he was part of a twin, a set of twins. So he was one of the 12 called the twin, and he was not with them when Jesus came to the upper room. So... Thomas, uh, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands in the print of my nails and place my finger in the mark of his nails, I will, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. And eight days later, his disciples were in the house, Thomas with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be failed faithless, but believing. And Thomas said to my Lord and my God. And our Lord says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So he has a very important place. Plus, Thomas and Nathaniel Bartholomew are in the boat when the apostles go fishing in John 21, verse 2. Then I will mention that the third group includes James, son of Alphaeus, who always is the head of that third group, as well as Thaddeus, uh, also surnamed Judas, Jude, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot. Again, as I said about in the last week, when talking about St. Matthew, that there are two Judes, uh, or two Judases in the fourth group. One is the patron saint of hopeless causes, and the other, Judas Iscariot, 
is the one who betrayed Jesus and then lost all hope and committed suicide. So this here now, um, this is something that is uh, worth noting. A uh, couple things. Levi Matthew is also called a son of Alphaeus, as is James. Okay, and it may be his brother. We don't know. Could be another Alphaeus, but it could well be the brother of James and Levi Matthew. You know uh, that they're, they're brothers. And Simon the Cananean is the, the name Cananean doesn't mean that he's a Canaanite. No, no, it comes from the Aramaic word kanna, kanna, and kanna means uh, zealous or jealous. So, uh, same in Hebrew, kanna means to be jealous. And so, this sense is that he's Simon the Zealot, and he was, uh, you know, very much a zealot. We'll see more about him in Luke uh, next week. And. Thaddeus, by the way, is a form of tadai. Tadai is an Aramaic word meaning courageous. Uh, but he's also known as Jude. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, in Luke 6, 16, he's called Judas of James. So um, we're not sure um, that he, we think that maybe he's Judas, the son of James. So uh, we don't know for sure what we, that means Yehuda bar Yaakov. Um, that's a real possibility. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot is the last one. Right? We don't know what Iscariot really means. There are a lot of different uh, possibilities. One is that Iscariot comes from Ishkariot because there was a town called Keriot. And it may be, mean that his name was a man of Keriot, Isha's man. Um, could be that his, you know, his father was called Simon Iscariot uh, in John 6, 71. Maybe that's the, the interpretation. Um, but it, it, it's hard to say um, you know, exactly what's going on there. It could also be from an Aramaic root, Sachar, and that means to be a liar or fraud, um, someone who's false. So that's possibility. Um, we're not sure. We're just not sure. Um, some people even try to derive it from Sicarius, which means dagger, because uh, he was an assassin. But again, we don't know for sure. But that's what we have there. So that's the list that we have in Mark. And it's more detailed to be sure. And it's worth paying attention to these different characters. Next week, we'll take a look at the last list, which is uh, in well, two lists, one in Luke, one in Acts. So uh, we'll take that then. Um, let's stop there, because uh, it'll be too detailed to keep going on. And let's take a look at some of your questions, OK? Now, the first question we have in an email from CBT it says, Father Pacwa, I often feel frightened when I hear this parable of the talents because I suffer from anxiety and I don't often know 
what is the right thing to do. So I feel like the servant who hid one talent because I don't really want to do something wrong. I've already made so many mistakes in my life and only seem to be unwanted or mess things up for others, CBT. Well, CBT, I, it's, you know, it might be easy for me to say, um, but it's clear to me that you are more afraid of making a mistake than you are of doing the right thing. Um, and one of the things is I don't like the attitude by which uh, you know, somebody, because you're not alone. You know, this, you, this talk about fear of making mistakes and things is very common. And oftentimes the older we get, the more afraid of making mistakes we are. And in some ways we need to recover some of our youth. One of the great things about youth is that they're willing to jump in to a situation and start acting. And that, I think, is, uh, th they need prudence, to be sure. They need prudence. But they also are willing to take risks. And I want you to think about this in terms of some of these other folks, the, the, the other two servants. They were given a lot of gold. Remember the talents? The guy got five talents. That's, you know, 65 pounds of gold. So he got over 300 uh, pounds, almost 350-some pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. And he took risks. And sometimes risks don't turn out. But our Lord is, is telling us in this parable, it's better to take those risks and try to learn from mistakes. Now, you don't have to put all of your gold into one investment. You can start doing, as a matter of fact, we talk about today, having a diversified portfolio. That's not a bad idea. And put your portfolio in different areas. Invest in different things and see where you're developing. So try teaching some catechism. Try doing some work with the poor. Try some of the pro-life activity. Take different approaches and see this is where <clears throat> I'm having the best effect. And use that as a way to say, this is where I should go. I'm going to develop this more. That would be a good way to do this and see what our Lord has you do better than others. And if you're working with other people, ask them, give them permission to help correct you when you're making a mistake so that you can get onto the right, make sure you do things correctly and right path. You know, that's okay. It's okay. Our Lord would be more concerned that you stay stuck in fear than that you make a mistake. That would be my strong advice. And, you know, I make plenty of mistakes. And I 
just try to learn from them. That's what I'd recommend for you. Okay? All right, let's take another question from our studio audience this time. Sir, where are you from? Laredo, Texas, Father. Good. I love Laredo. <laughs> That's a great, great town. It so is. So what... Uh, uh, and a lot of brush around there. Absolutely. So what can we do for you today? Father, I, I ask this question with full love and loyalty to our Magisterium and the Holy Father. Mm -hmm. um, you, you started the show by saying you cannot change the gospel of Jesus. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's solid. It is what mm -hmm. it is. And then I think you were talking about the apostles and the diversity. Mm -hmm. And within our Catholic Church, within the, within the church, there's 22 different rites. I don't understand, um, and, and maybe I, you know, I'm asking for some clarification. Why the persecution against the Latin Mass right now, the Mass of Ages? You know, you go to the Mass and it's packed. People are coming back. There's kids. There's babies. There's there's families. The past three weeks, I've been to three different parishes, standing room only, and mm -hmm. it's growing. But for some reason. There seems to be some animosity from, from the Vatican. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just trying to understand it better. Here's, there, there are a couple of things. You know, A, you are correct. The church has in its fiber a certain diversity that has included Armenian rite, using the Armenian language, the uh, various Oriental rites using uh, Aramaic, whether the Chaldeans, the Maronites, the Syriac Catholics, Syro Malankara, Syro Malabar. A variety, even among the Syriac ones, there's a variety. Then you have the diversity of Africa with the Coptic and Ethiopic rite, using Coptic language and Ethiopian. And then a great diversity in the Byzantine rite, where you have the rites where you have Ruthenian, Ukrainian, Greek, Bulgarian, all these different you know, forms of the Byzantine rite, the, the Italo-Greek rite. These are wonderful, wonderful gifts. And then the Roman rite. And frankly, I don't understand either why the, the Vatican is uh, so critical. I do understand a little bit. What I have heard is that they, the Vatican gets reports of some of the people promoting the Latin and the liturgy becoming divisive, that they look at the Latin as superior and they are dividing people. And there's a concern about schism. Right? That's, that, that's one of the things I've heard. And there's no room for schism. If you do want diversity, you have diversity exist within the oneness of the church. And, you know, I myself am not, you know, someone who is interested in celebrating the Mass in Latin. I'm just not. Now, and, but that doesn't mean I'm not in favor of it being available because I hear the same thing you just mentioned. Lots of young people are going, lots of young people and their children. And some people have said that their children behave better when Mass is in Latin because they sense the solemnity of it. And this is a very great gift. Now, the last thing I want is, you know, to have division inside the church. There's, there's no, I don't see any room for that. And obedience, 
And this is always more important than insisting on a good thing. Obedience and unity within the church is a higher value. And everybody, everybody has to remember, not Latin, not Syriac or Chaldean, not the vernacular or any other language is the savior of the world. Though people will not come to church because the mass is in the vernacular. Neither is Latin the draw. The, uh, the draw at mass must be Jesus Christ. He is the center of the mass, no matter what the language. But if people find that Latin is a help for them to focus on Jesus, it should be available. If the vernacular is a help to focus on Jesus, it should be available. And if Syriac or the other languages, the Byzantine community, whatever community it is, the purpose of the rite is not for nationalistic background or just to preserve the past, but to help us focus on Jesus Christ, who is the center of the Mass, the source of the Mass. And we have to keep our attention on Him and prepare our hearts to receive Him and be received by Him. That must be absolutely central. And I would just hope for, and I really do hope, for an openness that would allow those who prefer Latin to have it. It, it. In some places still is, but other places are discouraging it. And sometimes I sense people who grew up with Latin Mass, remember the old days, and don't want to go backward. That's how they see the Latin, that like you're going backward. I don't want to see that happen, that, uh, you know, that they would use their bad experience of mass in the 50s and early 60s, if it was a bad experience, I don't, I didn't find it bad, but I, I loved it uh, back then. But whatever there was going on in their experience, don't let that keep other people from finding this help to, to devotion to Christ. And Latin, right, Latin mass people, don't let, you know, your opposition to the vernacular keep you from that. And no matter how the Mass is celebrated, it has to be celebrated with the priest and people focusing on Lord, our Lord Jesus with great dignity. That you have a solemn Mass. It's not a, not a party and not something goofy. You keep it solemn and serious because it's Christ who's present. That might help everybody to learn to pray when they're at Mass and not do something, some other distraction. It's not a show or anything like that. It's focusing on Jesus. That has to be central. All right, we have to take a break. We'll be back in a couple minutes with more questions, so please stay with us.
right, welcome back. And just want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live, where we will speak with author and historian Michael Hesemann about Venerable Pope Pius XII in his efforts to save the Jews before World War II started and during the war. And we'll also discuss the issue of why the negative public image of Pius XII still is around. So this is something that we want to address. Very important question. And the, the book that he wrote is just wonderful. It's well-written, but also brilliant, brilliant research. So from the Vatican Library and Vatican Archives, the secret archives, the secret is out. They told me everything. So we'll be, <laughs> we'll be dealing with that. All right, we have an email from a YouTube viewer named Futhela. Oh, that's a name I've never heard. It's great. So let's see. Father Mitch, if a creator being recreates in his or her image but becomes upset when the creation doesn't live up to expectation, does that imply the creator being does not know him or herself? Um, well, you know, and by the way, uh, I'll tell an interesting question. Uh, in the biblical tradition and certainly throughout Christian tradition, the creator is, you know, understood to be uh, the, the Lord of masculine. In fact, even the, the divine name in the Old Testament is a masculine form. So one of the things uh, about that question is it's, it's not something that, um, you know, he, the, the, the creator didn't have a sense of, sense of not knowing himself. You know, it, it's, ra it's rather that the Lord God created human beings with free will. That's a key element here. And free will was also given to the angels. And whether it's the angels or the human beings, you know, free will means they have true choices to do that which is wrong. And when you do something wrong, you get punished for it. That's a key component here. So that is uh, something that I would strongly emphasize. And, you know, not something that's at fault with the man, one who creates with free will. If God wanted us without free will, then he just made more animals. Dogs and cats and lions and tigers and bears don't have free will. And they can't be bad. They can't be evil. They can't be good. They just follow their nature. We get to be good or bad. Now, I have another email. Um, it says, Dear Father Mitch, you have said that the actions performed by someone who is possessed are not sinful because the person does not have control of their will. Someone who's possessed has their will taken over by a demon. My questions are, how does someone become possessed and is the person so sinful that he invites the devil in? Uh, would you say that Job was possessed even though he had not sinned? A, Job was not possessed. He, the devil did not take over Job's will. 
so that he wasn't possessed. Secondly, in terms of uh, this, uh, the earlier questions, some people in their sinfulness do invite the evil spirit in. They play with the occult and other things, and they invite Satan in. Uh, sometimes, though, people don't. They, you know, it, because there, there are cases of possession of animals and very small children. So they have nothing to say about it. So that's, that's not uh, always the case. But sometimes they, they, they do invite the devil in. And, um, you know, so they become possessed. And we don't know. It's a mystery of evil uh, why they become possessed. In some, some cases they invite them or not. I um, would urge you to see the movie Nefarious. You'll get some really good insights into demonic possession and into the role of Satan. It's extremely well done, and I'd urge you to take a look at that. But not now, because I have run out of time. So let me give you a blessing. Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as Mother always asked, to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, because this network is brought to you by you, and we need your support. God bless you for that, and thank you. Mm -hmm.